Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush. I'm Michael. I'm Gabe. And this is The Return of Beer, Episode 7. Welcome uh, back, everybody. Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah, welcome Sorry about back. that. So we, we've been on a little bit of a hiatus uh, due to some personal reasons in my life. But luckily, with uh, some patience, we've been able to come back to it, and hopefully we'll be able to get back on track with some more consistent uploads and some better content for you. Yeah. Everything is is cool. It was just some stuff that was uh, medically related, actually, to COVID. So Always a good time. Always a good time. Also, uh, you know, reasons why he and I couldn't actually be in the same room until yeah. I was cleared. I am uh, half vaccinated now, though. Oh, we'll d- be getting that second one in a couple weeks. Yeah, but so. but the dosing can't come from a live virus. So. Yes, yes. Yeah. That is not uh, CDC recommended. That is not laid back lush recommended. By yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and service announcement. If you haven't gotten the vaccine yet, it is now available for everybody. Yep. And you can basically get it without even having to wait in line now at your local pharmacy. Shout out to Walgreens and CVS. So if you haven't done that yet, please do so. Yeah. Let's get this thing gone so we can get back to some breweries. Please. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I okay. miss them. <laughs> yeah. So uh, speaking of breweries, today we are wanting to talk about how beer made a comeback after Prohibition. So if you joined us for our last episode, we talked about how beer really ended up taking a second place to other forms of alcohol, including distilled alcohols uh, primarily. Yeah. Because of the fact that distilled alcohols were able to get you a higher content, easier to to store, easier to send places. Easier to hide. Easier to hide, especially. And so you didn't really see it being created. Whereas before the Prohibition, you had kind of these microbreweries. You had it being served at saloons and taverns. The home brewer just wasn't a thing anymore. The microbrewer mm-hmm. wasn't really a thing anymore. Yeah. Uh, and so you had some of these transitions. That happened, some of these world events that ended up occurring, that ended up shaping the profile of the American beer uh, product. Yeah. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today and how we've gotten to the point that we are now in 2021. Yep. Before we get into this, so pre-prohibition, we were talking about the the lack of infrastructure, the lack of transportation <laughs> methods. Uh, so I, what, what were we looking at as far as that? Well, you were... Looking at a world that was kind of in the middle of a very big transition from the industrial revolution and kind of just this exponential growth of technology. So Mm. pre-prohibition, you didn't really have access to refrigerated trucks, for Mm. example, which are a staple in all food and beverage production now, for the most part. Uh, You didn't have the scale to most people except for very wealthy companies to do industrial production like we do now uh, amongst, you know, the Bushes and the Millers of the world. And you also didn't really have infrastructure in terms of like roads, methods of getting these products out from your immediate community. It was a yeah. very localized thing. Like you just said, you had pre-prohibition. It was mainly home brewers. It, you, it was a lot of, yes, you had these larger companies that did exist, but a lot of it was you had a handful of people that made beer for their immediate community, and it was it was a very homegrown, so not to be see, too literal, yeah. So you didn't see, like, where we have now, Sierra Nevada is distributing nationally. Mm-hmm. You weren't even seeing, like, somebody distributing to an adjacent city in no, those cases. Not, not normally, no. Wow. 
Yeah. So completely foreign to the modern beer drinker yeah. is what the pre-prohibition world looked like. I am very curious what that beer would have tasted like now that we're talking about it. Because oh, yeah. yes, you didn't necessarily have the um, homogenization that we'll get into later on that ended up happening from more industrialized production. But you also didn't have access as readily to production methods. Oh, yeah. And information about how to make your beer better. Well, one of the main ones was actually, um, it was in 1880, which ended up actually inspiring the creation of the most prevalently used method of coffee brewing was actually the barrel roaster for the malts. Mm -hmm. Because beforehand, you actually just had the malts directly exposed to coal fire. Yeah. So a lot of it just tasted burnt. Yeah. Uh, it tasted like ash. It tasted like this kind of like smoke, but not in the way that anybody who's doing like smoked products like smoked meats. It wasn't like that. I might actually like that, though. I, I love charred flavors. So <laughs> there there was one beer from uh, Garden Grove actually called the Wild Child where they they accidentally burned the malt. <laughs> Work with what you got. <laughs> no, it was my, one of my favorite beers that they've ever produced and they actually are making some solid stuff now yeah no I, i've liked their stuff we've been a couple times actually together yeah no but this this one tasted like an isla scotch Ooh. which meant half of my friends were like this tastes like an ashtray <laughs> and then the rest of my friends was like this is delicious yeah and i'm just like yeah this yeah. is this is the one <laughs> give me more give me more of this so so a lot of different technological advances ended up really impacting this, including uh, we were talking about earlier canning. Yes. So like 1933, you had Kruger, which finally started doing canning. And right around 1900, that was the first time we had mass produced glass bottles. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, as we had previously stated in the Prohibition episode, beer production tanked. And yeah, although... The beer industrial side of the market, I guess, kind of fell off. A lot of more innovative methods for making things like near beers, which is basically beer, but it's less than 0.5% ABV, mm -hmm. malted milk, soda, yeah. all these things we were able to produce now. So beer as it was kind of has ceased to exist because beer once it became legal again, was kind of retrofitted into canning and bottling and these new more industrial scale methods yeah. that are Pabst and our Anheuser-Busch's and our cores. Because they were big companies before Prohibition hit, they were able to transition their production into these other, you know, near beers and, and malted milks and continue to make money. And once beer got legalized again, they were able to it was just switch a, back. It was just a matter of choosing the other liquid. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we did have these companies that were able to capitalize on these during the prohibition. I actually remember even a uh, fun fact for you, and we'll get into this later. But did you know that Coca-Cola was actually originally advertised as a way to get off morphine? That would explain why there was cocaine in it. Yeah, <laughs> I I, did, I I didn't know that aspect, but I did know there was cocaine in it originally. Yeah, yeah, this is this is all a game of like advertising, but for them to be able to just take this infrastructure, they had these now industrialized things, which were also being able to be distributed because of the fact that you had huge advancements in welding. Electrical technologies allowed for instant welding to occur. Yeah. You had railroads being welded for the first time using these modern technologies and bridges. And that's the yeah. huge one. Roads and access just Huge. 
especially for these bigger companies because they could afford to transport their beer yeah. once it got legalized again just was it made the industry explode really yeah so you had these groups so you had schlitz you had blatz you had pabst you had anheuser-busch you had Coors, you had miller and you had yinling and these guys ended up surviving somehow mm-hmm. through prohibition how yeah, did they cause... do that because they they couldn't have been turning a huge profit no well they actually functioned on a loss for a lot of these malted drinks that were not beers what a lot of them did was they diversified investments basically so you had anheuser bush and miller getting into real estate i don't quite remember exactly what kind of real estate from my remembrance it's more commercial real estate leasing out buildings to other businesses and whatnot and they started doing this kind of when prohibition was on the horizon and they knew like we need to start shifting our business you had cores which started weirdly enough getting into ceramics of all things what sort of ceramics if i can ask if i remember correctly i think a lot of it was like chinaware and whatnot oh, okay um it, it, it worked for them your core's dinner sets <laughs> yeah. served here for the host that knows how to show people a good time it's a very like weird thing but it from what i remember it was just that they had access to factories from an investment standpoint that were producing ceramics and they were able to just kind of like buy out and reap profit from it. And I guess that would make sense for them transitioning back to the beer with ceramics in mind. They probably had a lot of access to production. Yeah. And some companies turned into making dyes for like clothing and, and whatnot as well. Again, it's just one of those access to these industrial plants kind of gave them opportunities to buy in and have some profitability Hmm. while they were trying to still produce drinks that were not as profitable as beer and that they were sometimes operating on a loss on those products but they were still operating but they're still operating and you know again diversified assets you know splitting up your capital allowed them to stay in business at all now the weird thing about this time period is we were approaching a war but we also still had prevalent prohibitionists who were attempting to lobby And you had people within the government that were still trying to prevent what happened before Prohibition from happening again, specifically saloons. So I looked into it a little bit about the things that they sort of did to roll back these restrictions. But what is it exactly that they were doing in order to try and prevent saloons from becoming a thing again? Well, there's actually a really good article that I stumbled across called A Concise History of America's Brewing Industry by Martin H. Stack from Rockhurst University. Mm. And he had a really good quote that just kind of sums everything up in that article that goes, To prevent the excesses that had been attributed to saloons from reoccurring, post-repeal legislation forbade alcohol manufacturers from owning bars or saloons requiring them instead to sell their beer to wholesalers that in turn would distribute their beverages to retailers. So basically, if you're familiar with the kind of three-tier structure that is prevalent in both wine, beer, and liquor, everybody kind of uses this structure now, you have your producers, you have your distributors, and then you have your retail end and your Mm -hmm. customer base on the third tier of that. Yeah. So Which most of your beers right now are being distributed by premium. Yes. Um, so essentially, it's a government mandated middleman in order to because so um, I'm trying to remember which ones in particular. I'm pretty sure Anheuser-Busch and Coors owned their own, not saloons necessarily, but places you could go and like bars, I guess, would probably be the most modern equivalent. 
where you could go and get their beers sold to you that the company themselves owned. Mm. Um, so this was a, a step to prevent saloon culture from coming back. And we had already spoken last time about how awful saloon culture was, which yeah. is like, of all things within prohibition, it's just like okay, fair. Yeah, it, okay, fair. That's that's a good mark against how culture had had actually degraded exactly in an area that really was inexcusable. The, I'm not necessarily a fan of middlemen in general. I I think they kind of well, a they inflate prices normally, and b they're kind of unnecessary. But uh, uh, I do kind of struggle to think of a better alternative for this time period. I do think it's outdated now. Full disclosure, but. I, unless I lobby the House of Delegates, I don't think I'm going to change anything. Yeah, which a lot of them were alive during the time of this might have not <laughs> updated their opinions. Yeah. Which is something everybody needs to have room for. You can you can update your opinions from a previously matured iteration of yourself. But yeah. when you're in when you're in government, it, it behooves you to make sure you're updating a lot. You you gotta keep up with culture and technology in particular. Yeah. This device needs to be updated. Reboot, please. <laughs> so we we know that we had a couple of different breweries that ended up emerging after Prohibition. And we also saw some people who were actually willing to seed into the culture that eventually started producing and repopularizing beer. Because for a while, beer wasn't even picking up. No. I think for a lot of people coming out of Prohibition, where you had this culture where you were primarily drinking to get drunk or to hang out with your friends. Liquor was the better option. And also, when you come out of Prohibition, everybody was drinking liquor anyway because no one was producing beer. So, you know, it was it was a transition. But beer started to pick up yeah, so eventually. We, so we know about these kind of larger ones. But what uh, you had mentioned that there was a couple of breweries that, like, got their liquor license directly after Prohibition pretty yeah. quickly. So uh, I stumbled across this company i had never heard of them but i did want to include them because i think it's just a neat story and they were the first brewery to obtain their liquor license after prohibition ended and they are the weston brewing company which is now fx matt brewing company mm. they were established in 1888 by a german immigrant francis xavier matt he purchased the brewery from the Bierbauer family i'm assuming those are probably also other german immigrants i'm guessing that there's something Within that heritage. Something tells me. Something tells me about <laughs> the heritage of this family. I might not speak German, but, you know, something in this language seems a little familiar. Mm -hmm. uh, he <laughs> did all, he was a very successful businessman. He owned several businesses. He also owned the hotel Utica. I don't know if that's exactly how you pronounce it. I'm just going to say Utica or Utica. He owned Utica Cutlery and the First National Bank of Utica, so he had a very diversified portfolio in what he was operating. And he was not exactly on the uh, up and up with the prohibitionists' no. rules during Prohibition. Which, you know, I guess he had a vested interest, but we'll overlook that. <laughs> um, but during Prohibition, uh, the brewery kind of did what everybody else did. They sold non-alcoholic soft drinks. Uh, he sold a malt tonic under the name Utica Club. Uh, he did... So if you remember Vine Glow mm. and that situation from the last episode, if not, a little recap is basically there was a company called Vine Glow. Other companies did this as well, where they sold you grape juice that was unpasteurized. Ergo, it would ferment and they would have a warning label on how to not have it ferment in very detailed steps. He did the same thing with beer and 
the disclaimer that he put on his product, this uh, Utica Club, or no, sorry, not the Utica Club. I actually don't have down what that one was called, but it did say, do not ferment, do not add yeast, or you will create beer. So, oh, you know, well, it's good that he put that there because, yeah, know, the last thing that we would want is to create some beer. It, it is funny because, like, in a court of law, the plausible deniability is right there. It's like, I told people how not to make it. I can't help it. That yeah. they <laughs> we clearly said, caution, do not ferment, do not add yeast, or you will create beer. Yeah. So kind of moving forward, though, uh, after Prohibition, his grandson, I, if I remember correctly, this is his grandson, uh, Fred Matt, has a, a quote in the article that I read about this company that said, My great uncle Frank spent a ton of time in Washington, D.C. lobbying the government to repeal Prohibition. When it was finally successful, he was there. That's how we got the first license to brew beer after Prohibition. So basically, he was an activist. He was familiar with the D.C. methodology, I guess, if you want to call it that. And he knew when to strike when the iron was hot. And he ended up being the first brewery to obtain their liquor license. Uh, Utica Club is still producing beer to this day. Oh, they, no kidding. They have survived. I have never tried we're them. gonna have to now um yeah it, it's a really cool story uh and i i like the fact that they have survived and uh fred matt it, he, he does own it it has stayed in the family so it is still a family-owned business quote-unquote although i from the impression i got is that their production is quite large um but it, that isn't necessarily an indicator of quality in this matter now what i find strange about this time period is you have people coming out of prohibition you have the Industrial Revolution. You have more access to more places than ever before. You also have air travel becoming something that's more available to people. You have TVs being put in every single home. You also have refrigeration being something that becomes a thing. And so you have culture now being shaped around advertisements. Yeah. While I was doing the research into this time period, it all felt like a giant episode of Mad Men. Uh, <laughs> like we were talking about this earlier. If you've never seen Mad Men, it's about a young man who is part of an advertising firm who they come up with different ways, different slogans to kind of capture the American public into believing in these different things. Highly recommend the show. Uh, probably one of the most strange looks into American <laughs> psychology as it relates to advertising yeah. that I can, I can mention. I still have yet to see it, but after this episode, I might have to start. <laughs> yeah. You, you might, I might need to show you episode one, which is about, uh, the advertising of tobacco. Um, oh, that's a topic right there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. no. And, and the <laughs> solutions that they came up with, I mean, it's the solutions that you had here. So. You had you had World War II hit, right? Yeah. And you also had spending power shifting from the men to the women. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was being expressed in women's magazines. Women's magazines would, you know, throw out here. Actually, my great-grandmother even copied artwork off of these magazines in order to teach herself art. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. No, this stuff was everywhere, and it was affecting everybody in their homes. Well, uh, this is a bit of a side note, but it, uh, we both are artists, like, we do drawing we do stuff. And stuff. He's uh, better at it than I am. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. But the um, one of my biggest inspirations, kind of like your grandmother, I love turn of the 20th century posters in particular, like yeah. movie posters and the advertisements that came out of so that time. So dramatic, so expressive. Um, yeah, I mean, 
Art Nouveau, Muha, th- like that whole, I, I love those illustrations. They're so well done. Like they are effective advertising. A lot of them are beautiful. I guess, depending on your political leanings and your views on capitalism, you might or might not call them art, but I, I would say that it's they art. are, they're, they're very good examples. I of mean, even art. Roman, uh, sculptures were more often than not used for political activism in order yeah. to show the might of Rome. Yeah. What we call a bit of propaganda in one generation becomes the picture of society in the next one. Yeah. It's a historical picture of what's going on. Mm-hmm. But like even these like old Coca-Cola ads, some of them are just like they're a lot of them were painted by hand. A lot of them look really oh, yeah. good, even by today's standards. When I was a kid, I was captivated by Coca-Cola ads for Christmas. They set yeah. the mood for me more than anything yeah. else. They were very effective marketing. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. This is this is literally how companies like Schlitz especially were able to get themselves into people's homes. Yeah. Because they would have these advertisements that would show a devoted wife, mm-hmm. you know, in an elevated position, pouring a beer for her husband, and it was a kiss of hops. Yeah. It wasn't just, you know, pouring a beer for your husband. It was, this is literally how you, as a wife, take care of your husband. Yeah. Is by doing this. And so you saw that kind of becoming how they got into people's homes, and it was able to rebrand something that was actually the result of wartime scarcity. Yeah. So, and that's that's kind of the next thing that ended up happening was World War II. So you had rationing of the grains that are used inside of beer. We mentioned mm-hmm. wheat, barley. These are things that are used to, well, feed people. Yeah. And when you're in war, you have to feed your soldiers. Bread is a staple. Bre- bread in, is a thing. In a short supply, yeah. Yeah, and in many cases, uh, bread was not always even in the best of conditions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes it was a little green from the nice little fuzzies that grew on it. Yeah. And our and our prohibitionists were actually even making an argument that, hey, brewers are taking away manpower. They're taking away uh, these these grains that are vital for the war effort. But advertising actually allowed that to be completely rebranded because Anheuser-Busch, Coors, Miller, they all came out and said, well, actually, there are B... B vitamins inside of uh, the beers <laughs> because of the yeast. And uh, there are some other things that are inside of the beer that allow your soldiers to to fight better on the battlefield. So, But, uh, Michael, since the rations were going on, I imagine their production would have had to been cut back, right? No. No, it didn't, well, Gabe. How, how on earth did they get around that? Well, you see... It wasn't related at all to the fact that they were rationing the high-quality ingredients that they started to use inferior ingredients. They would never. No, no, of course not. It's not (laughs) as though that they would just want to produce regardless of the quality. Oh, uh, heaven forbid. Yeah, so essentially (laughs) uh, the style of beer that you see in things like Coors Light, Miller Light, most of your Anheuser-Busch products, it's Pilsner. But it's been restricted – Using rice and corn. Now, the only reason why they had to use rice and corn was because the higher nutritional and higher quality ingredients were being rationed for the war effort. So this was literally just them having to put in a filler, like putting in bread inside of meatballs. This was literally being used as filler. Yeah. 
but they were able to turn it around and advertise it as something that was just crisp and refreshing and wonderful and how you take care of your husband. And after the war, that trend kind of continued because with, again, we were talking about the onset of television marketing and the 60s in particular. The 60s, late 60s going into the 70s saw a very big increase in health consciousness. And step forward and good, good, absolutely take care of your body. But the bigger producers like Bud in particular always comes to mind for me for light beer and, you know, Coors Light and whatever. A lot of I don't want to call it fear mongering because it is true that beer does tend to have more calories than a lot of well, not a lot of liquor, depending on the liquor can also have a lot of calories. If you're a fitness enthusiast and you're trying to have a hard cutting phase, maybe not so much on the beer. Yeah, it it does have calories. But there is a lot of pushing this narrative that it was super high in calories, and it's super bad for you. And you're going to get fat or whatever. And you're going to bloat and you're going to XYZ from beer, which again, a lot of it was kind of like, you know, a grain of truth kind of taken to the nth degree. But a lot of these companies, because they were already producing these very light styles of beer, picked up on that. Yeah. And advertised themselves as basically like diet conscious drinks, I guess, for lack yeah. of a better term, which we see that to this day. I mean, a lot of these brands still advertise themselves as being the low calorie alternative right which is funny because they also turn around and are like this is the manly thing to have and yeah you know which is funny because it promotes you know not only uh, a lack of creativity and brewing but also gender stereotypes and also why are we gendering who drinks what in the first place yeah exactly <laughs> no that's what i mean it's like it's all just decided in a marketing yeah a marketing thing that ends up winning funding who knows if the ceos actually know or not Going way, way back in time to pre-industrial age when a lot more people were working a lot more labor-intensive jobs, Guinness in particular, uh, which I actually still like Guinness, I'm not going to lie. Me too. Hands down. Nothing to be ashamed of for loving Guinness. Yeah, Guinness was started by a Christian man who, I don't remember if he was a missionary or not, I need to look that up, but he, he was a Christian man who worked a lot with laborers and he saw that they did not have access to adequate nutrition. And that's mm-hmm. actually where Guinness came from is it gave them calories and it gave them nutrients. Like we said, you know, there's B vitamins and stuff that comes from the yeast and the fermentation process. He was giving these laborers nutrients that they did not have access to otherwise. Yeah. Now, granted, these are not like your strong ales or your imperials. These are no. not, you know, your 12% hit no, like no, a no, truck no. beers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are like four percenters, stuff like that. And they did. In fact, there's there's a whole thing about how Guinness saved Ireland mm-hmm. yeah. uh, because of its ability to very uh, effectively store and deliver calories to people who did not have adequate nutrition. Yeah. There was the famines and everything of that time period as well that increased demand for readily available nutrients. And again, a lot of these were for these men who did hard labor, who needed opportunity to get their nutrients back in but then we saw the inverse 100 years later or however long from yeah. from that to this these uh, restricted beers that were inflated in price due to taxes and middlemen and middlemen <laughs> and they just were able to get into everybody's homes now the thing that it did do is it did actually cause a 40% growth in like 4 years mm-hmm. during the war yeah so you had world war 2 about 15% of the beer sales were actually commissioned by the military because 
the argument that it would make more effective soldiers actually worked. Which maybe that maybe that is true. Uh, we know soldiers like to drink, right? I mean, I know so. I don't want to be thinking. So if I'm on a battlefield, yeah. Uh, but you know, whatever the case may be, you did see about forty percent growth, and this is what actually allowed the marketplace to be somewhere where you could see the reemergence of craft beer. Yes. Before we get there, though, I, I do want to say. This time period, we, we've we already talked about how, you know, Anheuser-Busch, Coors, Budweiser, all these big brands were able to transition into beer because they had the capital to do it. From that period, from when Prohibition ended kind of to what we're about to get into, which is kind of the era of the home brewer, I guess, if you want to call it that, was basically these companies just buying up market share like there's oh, no yeah. tomorrow because of the access that these companies in particular had to refrigerated trucks, transportation, warehouses, you know, uh, contacts, they had so much market share. And because there was not a lot of competition, and then as we were just talking about with this more focus on fitness in the late 60s and onward, people got tired of their beer. Mm. And the lack of competition basically led to these companies sitting on their laurels. And there are some wine industry comparisons to be made here that I'm not going to say out loud. Um, but the. We'll go back to that later. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned for us talking trash on prominent producers. Just kidding. We're not going to do that. But no. um, the <laughs> <laughs> we were so worried. I, I was sitting here and I was just like, man. There are so many beers that I love and that I just really want to promote, but like everything that I look into about this but, history. But are any of them Anheuser Busch? Mm -mm. Are any of them Miller Lite? Are no, any I of mean, them some Michelob of them have been Ultra? bought by them. It, true. And then you saw an immediate decrease yeah. in the quality of the products. Yeah. So uh, for brands like this, I mean, well, these brands also tarnished America's reputation on the global scene for beer. Yeah. Because of how homogenized they became because of the lack of competition. Well, they're and like, they it's tasteless. It. Yeah, the, exactly. The other, other countries are just like, this is, this is tasteless. Yeah. So th these companies in a way, yes, they bought up all this market share, but they kind of got too big and too comfortable i guess yeah. and they didn't innovate they didn't go back to more traditional styles of beer they just made these light crisp easy 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 drinking beers that kind of have no character well and they so they had this this uh ingredients list that was developed because of rationing mm -hmm. during wartime and they just never went back on it because yeah. well, now the american public was used to it yeah and, and they're profitability just went through the roof at, yeah. at a certain point so why would you change it back I'll buy corn all day why not you know it's, it's it's everywhere in the united states it's easy to access easy to process but then we had other people coming in who finally wanted to actually start introducing some craft beer into the scene specifically john r mcculliffe he was a welder who was living at the time he was the first to actually come in and serve something that wasn't the light style of beer and wasn't just even Pilsner. He was serving stouts. He was serving ambers. He started his company under the name of New Albion Brewing Company and started it in Sonoma, California. Now, unfortunately, he was only around for about six years. Yeah. But the people that he inspired would include people like Ken Grossman of Sierra Nevada, he inspired the creation of the Boston Beer Company and the Mendocino uh, Brewing Company. 
this guy's legacy cannot be overstated. Yeah. Uh, he was also the one that ended up helping for the Cali Assembly Bill 3610, which actually allowed for locally brewed products to be served in the place that they were brewed. So you actually were allowed to have a brew pub again. And it was, it was kind of watery. That exact assembly bill. So they, they had to kind of reestablish it a little bit later on, but it was what he was allowed to do. Yeah. And it has now become the staple of what we see today. And it'll, it, because of that inspiration, you actually had these microbrewers come into prominence again and start creating products that weren't just this nationally syndicated, highly advertised thing. Yeah. And they actually had flavor. And they actually had flavor. Well, <laughs> and, it, and it brought us back to this state of we're thinking creatively about these products. We're thinking yeah. historically about these products. It's not just numbers on a graph. Yeah. It's a it's an experience that we are selling. It is it is something that is a craft. I do want to kind of emphasize this return, this return to tradition, and also this breakaway from tradition, where it was like these older beer styles are being rediscovered, but then. We're putting them in bourbon barrels, you know, for like stouts yeah. and, and stuff. It, we're going back. We're rediscovering why people liked these drinks in the first place. Why for, they refined these recipes and these brewing methods. Yeah. Like, why did people even like this in the first place? But now we're going to add on to it and we're going to experiment and we're going to add flavors and we're going to add twists and even new styles sometimes such as like the doubles and triples that have come out in recent years so like i think goose island was the first one that was just like hey we have this stout what if we threw this in a bourbon barrel like yeah and then so they end up creating that and that ends up exploding freaking everywhere yeah everybody has a bourbon barrel something even guinness has a bourbon barrel now do they i didn't know that oh no it was right there when we were picking up the beers that we are going to be reviewing shortly it's not bad. It's it's pretty good. And even uh I think I think uh oh gosh, is it Jack Daniels did a collaboration with oh god, I can't remember. They did a with one of these national ones cuz the the weird thing is, is that these nationally syndicated, internationally distributed Anheuser-Busch, Coors, Miller, their advertisements were all against the craft brew scene. Yeah. And then immediately when that wasn't working, they turned around and started copying the craft brew scene. It kind of it, it worked in their favor. Or they wor- bought them. Or they bought them. Yeah. Like they did with uh, with Devil's Backbone, which was unfortunate. Yeah. So they, they actually have been kind of now copying them. They've been producing their own stuff. Some of it is passable. Uh <laughs> You know, I, if you enjoy I it, just don't try it, honestly. <laughs> if you enjoy it, kudos to you. I'm glad that you found something that you enjoy and you probably have some really good reasons, which I would love to hear in our DMs if you would like to. Uh, but it's we should probably say all of this is uh, this episode kind of a whole not a, a, on the whole. There's a lot of historical stuff, but our opinions on these companies are just that there are opinions. If you like these beers, yeah. that's totally fine. We just don't really agree with you on that. Well, and you can like the product. Uh, the main thing is that I think both you and I were discovering while we were doing the research is just the behavior. It, it's it's more the I would kind of call it maybe not predatory, but there was a very big power imbalance with Mm -hmm. these companies and the access that they had to becoming these huge international companies that the smaller producers just could not keep up with. And I, I, I'm the same in the wine world. I will always root for the little guy in these situations because the little guy 
in this industry normally not always by any means but normally is the one who truly really cares about the craft oh yeah well like so now beer is a 22 billion dollar industry yeah about 25 percent of that is craft beer Mm -hmm. which means obviously that a significant portion of this is going to people who actually care about the craft and maybe they are trying to turn over a profit we don't want to make a generalization you have to make money to continue your business yeah like i I will never knock someone for making a profit off of what they're passionate about but with these larger companies it really does feel like when you look at how their business practices work that they are stripped of the artistry and it really is just about turning a profit yeah at any cultural cost yeah and it's also about keeping their production as cheap as possible oh yeah which yeah which unfortunately i think is one of the reasons why we do see this this decline in overall overall beer sales even though we have seen a consistent seven to ten percent annual growth in craft beer sales yeah which i love because more for us more for us (laughs) especially in richmond yeah, the more the more creative people are doing awesome things, the more I get to enjoy and imbibe on. And I get to share with friends, which actually was some of the advertisements that I didn't mind so much. Some of the advertisements that they had, they basically were like, there is a lot of things that are being kind of taken away. And you could even see this as kind of predatory advertising. They're like, <laughs> you know, during wartime, there are a lot of things that we can't enjoy as much, but what we can enjoy is each other's company. Yeah. And that enjoyment can be enhanced with with just something to share between friends. It was just like, okay, I see what you're doing. I see yeah. you. I it, see it, you. It's smart. It's, it's smart. smart. Yeah. Well, and sometimes in uh sometimes, you know, they they hit on some stuff that actually does feel pretty real. Yeah. Which is fantastic. You know, so now we have like in our local scene, we have Hardywood, we have we mentioned Garden Grove. Mm-hmm. These are these are places that really do care about what it is that they're serving, and it is fun to just be able to go and enjoy it with friends. And now we have another emergence of technology, and we've mentioned this before, but we have the internet, we have word of mouth, we have Google searches, we have Facebooks, yeah. we have Twitter. These things have actually only been around since the the mid twenty tens, and they're they are what have actually allowed these craft breweries to thrive because word of mouth is now something that can come from your kitchen. Yeah. There's something that can come from your car while somebody else is driving, please. And it doesn't hurt that there's a new brewery, it seems, on every corner in downtown Richmond. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh no, seriously. You you just walk around Richmond and it's just like, oh I I didn't see them before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're creating some amazing stuff. And this is how but this is how advertising works now. Now it's your yeah, friends that that exactly. pull you into the latest brewery, mm-hmm. uh, which if you're lucky includes uh allowing dogs, uh, which is my preference. I think most of them do at this point. A good at, deal. At least do. outside. Yeah. Yeah. I know Hardywood, West Creek, Garden Grove, and Arden do. I don't know if Eiley does. I haven't actually been to their location yet. But honestly, I think that without the internet, without Facebook, without Twitter, you would not have this happening at all. No, which I think, you know, social media has its ups and downs and its drawbacks. But I think this is a really good example of where social media can really shine. And that's promoting your local businesses and your producers who are passionate about what they're doing, who are trying to get. A product out, yes, but a good product and a product that they believe in. Yeah. 
And there are a lot of beer trails now, too. People will make whole campaigns for themselves out of just going to various beer beer trails. And you can find them on Twitter. Uh, a couple notable ones uh, we've seen and have enjoyed, uh, or at least that I've seen and enjoyed, Historic Hops, Seminole Beer Trail, uh, Helltown Beer Trail, Blue Ridge Beer Trail. Those are just a few. Uh, oh, and Beltway Beer Trail. Those are just a few that I personally enjoy in our immediate area. Uh, and you can, like I said, you can find those on Twitter and it gives you a little map and just discover people's creativity. Yeah. Which it's great that this is such a growing industry now because it would have been awful if on the international scene we remained to be the flavorless few. Yeah. Well, with that all being said, why don't we get into actually reviewing a couple beers that we picked up today? I think that that is an excellent idea, Gabe. So to start off with today, we ended up grabbing the Hardywood Pills since the national brands are typically going to be your restricted Pilsner. I thought that it would be fun to get a Pilsner that is done with uh, the traditional brewing method. Yeah. Uh, specifically, Pils is... And one that we know we like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One that we knew that we would love. Um, so we're just going to spend the next several minutes gushing about this beer. Uh, so as far as color goes... This is a golden color. Yeah, definitely. This is vibrant. A fairly, yeah, I was going to say a fairly intense gold too. Yeah. Aroma. What are we looking at? Well, I mean, obviously the kind of cereal, weedy, barley notes. Um, yeah. But for me, it just kind of like the whole Meyer lemon to orange, tangerine, citrus, oils, really uh, kind of that. But subtle. Subtle, but it's soft. But it still kind of has uh, that sharpness that citrus oils kind of have. But it's not. Um, it's not. It doesn't hit your nose the wrong way. Sometimes when citrus is unchecked, it can definitely, for me oh, at yeah. least, hit your nose the wrong way, and it's almost painful to smell. Yeah, it's like having a uh, orange peel just kind of rubbed in your nose. Yeah, which nobody likes. If you doubt me, try rubbing an orange peel in somebody's nose and see what happens. <laughs> but I would say overall that that's kind of. Mainly what I pick up, uh, I will, full disclosure, my, my nose is much more attuned to wine tasting notes than to beer tasting notes. Um, so I am at a little bit of a handicap there, but that's mainly what I pick up. I would call this kind of a simple beer. Um, but I don't say that in a bad way. It's, it smells very refreshing. It smells very just like spring. Yeah. It's pretty nice. well rounded. I yeah. would say that you can even kind of pick up on just the well roundedness from the aroma itself. Um, it's not exact. It's not a toasted aroma, but you can mm-hmm. tell that there's a richness it's, to it. It's a little malty. Yeah. Um. Not quite roasted, but yeah, like a little malty. There's a richness to it. See the flavor. We're gonna we're gonna taste this now. I will say the uh, citrus is kind of the shining star on the palate. I think. Yeah. yeah. I'm definitely getting some of those cereal malts in there. You can definitely kind of tell it's not so much breadiness as much as it is just like if you think uh, a nice breakfast cereal, like that's the sort of note that this is hitting. Yeah, I think like Cheerios or um, like cornflakes, mini wheats, not frosted mini wheats, but just like mini wheats. Yeah. 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 Like those cornflakes, kind of like if you had a little bit of honey in there, but instead of there being a pronounced sweetness, there's just a touch of those hops, which just I think hits at the perfect note. I do think there's – um. A slight sweetness to this beer, but it it doesn't read as sweet because there is some bitterness in this beer. Mm-hmm. 
it's bitterness that I don't mind. And as we talked about in our beer episode, uh, you probably know I'm very sensitive to beer flavors. I don't like them normally, but this is a beer where I actually really appreciate them because they kind of give a structural backbone to the flavor profile where it's not just fruit. It's not just an easy sipping thing, but there's like a little bit of a little bit of a sharpness, a little bit of a bite to it that just kind of adds some intrigue and Again, just kind of a structural backbone to the yeah. overall flavor profile. And I would say it finishes out with just a lovely, like, lemon zest. Yeah. Going back to the sweetness as well, the, the sweetness kind of helps offset that bitterness a little bit because it's not – sometimes when you only have sweetness, it's just kind of cloying and whatever. But the bitterness and that very, very subtle sweetness kind of serve to make it more of a balanced experience for the beer. It's balanced. And there's yeah. enough – there's enough sweetness as opposed to acidity in order to really make this just a really pleasant drinking beer. Yeah. Like I could have this out on a porch on a sunny day any day in the summer. So now we're going to be moving on. We actually forgot to mention these guys, even though they are one of the quintessential brewing companies inside of Richmond, located just on the other side of the James from the Richmond Mel- uh, metropolitan area is Legend Brewing Company. And today we are trying the Imperial Bach. Has a really cool label. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was around 70% of the reason why Gabe got it. You know, you don't have to call me out like this because if people go and see this label, they're going to see the pretty girl on it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's kind of like a a goth-looking label. And if you know me in real life, you kind of know that's uh, my aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe that the specific reference, because actually even the text, look at the text. It even looks like yeah. the text from. It kind of looks like a like 2002 metal album. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if you liked Underworld. Or, uh, uh, or if you're a fan of Nightwish. Yeah. Uh, go for that. Anywho. So <laughs> moving on to this Imperial Bog. What, what is? Oh, wait a minute. This has a description on the back. That's interesting. They just had kind of like a legend, a 1902 legend from Roanoke, which has a a strangely Irish feel to it, if Mm -hmm. I'm being honest. Yeah. It's the woman in black. You ever hear about like the uh, the women in black that would come to you before a battle? No. Is that similar like a Valkyrie legend or something? Not quite Valkyrie. It's uh, basically if you did not submit yourself to her before the battle, it was guaranteed that you would die. Oh, Well, you might want to respect her and submit yourself to her then. (laughs) Which is probably the excuse that you gave your wife when you went home. (laughs) Listen, honey. (laughs) Oh, you can't pull that on me. (laughs) Yeah, it's just... Oh, my God. Sorry, honey. I wanted to come home to you, so... (laughs) The only way you can make that argument. Uh, so uh, how do we uh, how do we respect this woman in black? So amber in color. Yes. Definitely not black. This is a Bach after all. I would. Um, it is amber. But if you've ever tried a tawny port mm. or seen a tawny port, I would put this close to that kind of almost it's getting brown. It's that very like brick red color. It, it's a beautiful color, actually. I, yeah. I love it. Which, by the way, uh, illegal coloring agents were pretty prominent before that whole barrel roasting method. Yeah. Uh, forgot to mention that as a little fun fact, but now it's mostly because of our technologies, you're, you're getting some really good indications as to what a beer is going to taste like just by the color. Yeah. 
because of the fact that the beer brewing processes have gotten so refined. So what do we smell on this one? I get orange peel again. Yeah. But it's more of um if you remember those chocolate oranges yeah. that you used to eat as a kid around Christmas time, or at least I did, it's that candied orange peel. Mm-hmm. This is roasty. Like there there yeah. is there is roasty. So there is that chocolate coffee element coming in as well. I'd say even toffee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. There's Some almost nuttiness. a bit of a like a sour note to it. Yeah, I think um again for me it kind of reads a citrus oil. Yeah. But also um kind of like a Chinese sweet and sour sauce, you know that like I don't know what I don't I actually don't know how sweet and sour sauce is made, but that kind of sour yeah. where it's like that it, it's not sour in a fermented sense per it's se, like which is kind of Campari weird. Out of the bottle. Yeah, I, that's actually a really good way to put it. Yeah. But then there's also that nice roasty malt aroma to it. Yeah. To tell you the truth, I get a couple of like almost farmhouse notes off of this. Um I as far as aroma is concerned. I would not I personally wouldn't I'm not gonna say you're wrong here because I can't tell you what you're smelling, but I would go more earthy than farmhouse because farmhouse for me reads animalic. Mm-hmm. I don't really get animalic here. Yeah, and I'm not getting like any band-aid or anything like that. That's no. that's not what I'm picking up on. Um for me it's like you know when you have leaf piles in fall and it's like kind of rained recently and there it's, it is. it's that damp leaf. Yeah. That's what I'm getting off of that. Yeah. That might be what I'm thinking. I think you hit on it perfectly. Or um even tree bark, which I know sounds really weird, but there's kind of something tree barky about it. As far as the flavor goes, a lot brighter than I was expecting from mm-hmm. the aroma. Yeah. It's not heavy at all. I mean, given the label and the look and the smell, you would think this would kind of be one of those like cloying almost kind of beers, but it's really not. It sits really nicely on the palate. It's It's got it, enough grit to it where it's not I wouldn't even describe it as grit. It's got enough traction. Yeah. And it's um it's I wouldn't call it a refreshing beer, but it's fresh yeah that might sound fresh but mealy yes it's um where if the hardywood pills is like a spring this is kind of more that it's summer and you've just cut your grass or um right ooh, right after you harvest hay bales Mm -hmm. if you've ever been around that like that kind of like something that's fresh but it's fresh because it's just been cut off of a vine or or, or yeah. it's been cut off the ground or something like that. Yeah, there's there's a bit of like a cut reed mm-hmm. note that comes off of this and it just rests on the palate. Yeah. I mean, I'm still getting it. I took my sip a little bit ago and it's just it's there. This beer is also a little bit sweeter. Yeah. Uh, there is definitely a perceptible amount of sweetness. I I would not call this a sweet beer, but there is a, just a little bit of that uh, toffee actually i think is kind of perfect toffee or caramel that or, there's a lot um, of caramel in here sometimes walnuts and pecans for me read a little bit sweet when you just eat oh, them yeah, raw absolutely it's almost like that it's that nuttiness with kind of the sweetness of that yeah that nuts oil that I, kind of stands out i think a nutty caramelization would be a good way to say how these kind of citrusy flavors are are blending together peanut brittle yeah Definitely some peanut brittle going on. But with more on the brittle and less on the peanut. Yeah, not I again, I would go for walnut or pecan for the actual like nut flavor. Maybe if walnut brittle is a thing, <laughs> that's kind of how I would describe it. 
If that isn't a thing, we need to make it a thing. Uh, the more I'm thinking about it, the more delicious it sounds. It really <laughs> does. Yeah, so these are both solid beers. Yeah. If you are ever in the Richmond area or if you are in the Richmond area, you can for sure find the Hardywood Pills at pretty much oh, any yeah. place that sells local beer. I don't know about the legend. Again, it's the Imperial Bach, Woman in Black. I imagine if if Legend is selling this as like a current release, you probably can find it in most places that sell local beer. In oh, Richmond. Yeah, you can find this in a convenience. Oh, you know what I found out? Hmm. Convenience stores are upwards of ninety percent of beer sales. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Like holy crap! Yeah, I did not realize because you pay convenience store prices at that point. Yeah. I know that if I was your banker and I saw that, I would tell you you were doing something wrong. <laughs> Apparently not, though, if you want to keep the beer industry afloat. Well, that's the thing, though. It's only keeping the uh, the convenience store industry afloat, which, granted, True. I love Wawa. So, you know. Hey, they make good uh, ready-to-made sandwich or re- made-to-order, my goodness, <laughs> made-to-order sandwiches. But seriously, go to the brewery. Go to a grocery store. Yeah. My Lord. Go to your local bottle specialty shop. There's one right around the corner from here called Bottle Works. Go there. Yeah. You know, these are these are places where you can get a much wider selection of beers for so much cheaper, and you're actually giving it to, to people who like it. Actually, there there are a couple of convenience stores that I know of that have kind of made a transition to where they are just investing so much in their selection it's not even funny places like lucky's in particular are are pretty good about it yeah but yeah i was just shocked when i i found that out well i mean again like if you're on your way home from work and you're wanting a six-pack or something it makes perfect sense as to why that would represent such a large market share i mean i know i want a breakfast burrito and a and a beer some nights that sounds just about right actually sounds really good right now i could i could go for a breakfast burrito (laughs) i think we know what we're doing after this episode yeah (laughs) but yeah these are these are some solid beers so that's kind of you know just to kind of summarize that's how we kind of saw beer being shaped Mm -hmm. in america post prohibition all these different technologies kind of coming together in order to produce what it was and then the emergence of new technologies allowing it to become what it is so if you have any questions about any local breweries, please DM us. We really appreciate you guys at Laidback Lush. Yeah, at Laidback Lush. We really appreciate you guys listening to us. It really has been encouraging to see our our uh, listenership grow. Mm-hmm. We've had a couple of people who have binged it recently, uh, and we want to thank you guys for that as well. Yeah. It's it's fun being able to share this stuff. It's fun being able to talk about it. I say it almost every episode how grateful we are for our small little community. So if you're ever in the Richmond area and you want to know some recommendations for local spots, give us a give us a DM and we'll we'll let you know what we think you would like. We love recommending stuff. Yes, we do. And we can tell what you would like simply by your coffee and cheese preferences. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, and if you don't like coffee and cheese, well, you're you're just out of luck. I'm sorry. Why are you even listening to this yeah, podcast? What, what are you doing? <laughs> are you even a person who has a palate? Oh, oh come God. on! No, no, just jokes. If you don't like cheese, then well, you're probably lactose intolerant, but we'll forgive that. No, I'm lactose intolerant. Don't give them excuses, and, and, and we'll forgive you. Don't, don't give them excuses. I'm lactose intolerant. I'm lact. I'm lactose. You're lactose. Lactose. My name is lactose. <laughs> Okay. Tosser of the lax. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. 
There, there are too many directions that that could go. And I just finished watching the most recent Mortal Kombat, so most of them are probably too nerdy for our viewership. Uh, or wait. not nerdy enough, depending oh. on who's listening. Okay, well, before we go off the rails here, we want to thank you guys again for listening to us. Uh, I've been Michael. I've been Gabe. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>